I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Have you ever asked somebody how they experience you as a parent in your leadership role, or maybe a policy that you wrote? And have you ever asked them what they would really like to experience? This is exactly what Sharif El-Meki, founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development did with his students and his teachers. He shares examples and stories as to how to shift dynamics in communication in any type of relationship through the exchange of feedback around what has been experienced. Listening in this way can lead to deeper understanding of the situation, more impactful decisions, and an overall shift in mindset, allowing for all voices to be heard, even at scale. He also talks about how to ask powerful questions that not only connect the dots and dig deep, but also help us move into action, paving the way for creative problem solving for a better, more just, and fulfilling future. Enjoy listening in. What does it mean to have thinking time as an adult? You know, what does it mean to have that as a youth? You know, and I think the way we frame questions, I think, allow students to build their own paradigms about how they're interacting with their world, how they're thinking through the complexities that they live through and that they're experiencing, right? And so if, if questions center around like, how they felt, how they processed, what were their goals, what were their intentions, you know, those kind of things, as much as possible, non-judgmental way, you know, more about curiosity. And that helps inform their frameworks as not only as they interact with other people, but how they interact with themselves. Can you give mm -hmm. me an example or tell me about a time where you were able to framing a question or how you framed a question allowed that to happen? One example was I remember this, you know, distinctly, you know, I was in, I was probably in middle school. I was frustrated and I'd gotten into some trouble. And, you know, initially my mother was asking me what happened in that moment. You know, then she paused. Now looking back, what I recognized was that she decided like whatever happened in the moment, there was antecedents that occurred. What preceded that emotional response? So, you know, a lot of times we're responding to like, oh, here's what happened. Less curious about the triggers. You know, I've even heard adults say like, I don't care what happened before. What, why did you respond this way? You know, and I think sometimes out of frustration, we just want to solve the problem. We want to address how whatever the child was experiencing, how it manifested. Like that was an inappropriate response. And that, that very well can and likely true in that moment. But we also have to be curious about what are the other things um, that occur, right? And so if a child is only told don't respond in frustration, but they're not told to know their body enough, to know their internal mechanisms enough, to know when they're reaching that point. And all they're doing is being reprimanded for reaching the point, but mm -hmm. no supports beforehand. Like, hey, when do you feel frustrated? When do you feel you know, agitated? You know, I have, I have a, a niece that is on the autistic spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of, you know, when I watch the parenting, you know, and my, my mother, her grandmother also, you know, so would talk about this as she's teaching all of us how to, you know, be good parents and aunts and uncles. What she said was, this is good for all children, you know, being able to, and you see this sometimes, like if a, if a child may react negatively to spur the moment changes, which, which they think is like last minute, like, what do you mean it's time to go right now? You know, there are many students and adults who need time to process, like, we're going to be leaving soon. Hey, you have about 15 more minutes. 
You know what I mean? So think of all the times, but we're usually so much in a rush. We can't do that as adults, let alone decipher and help create that type of space for children. And it's not just little children, not just, a, you know, in America, they call it terrible twos, which I think is a horrible, you know, designation or label for a two-year-old, you know, who's trying to find their boundaries. And we're like, you're terrible. You know, this is a terrible time of your life. I think sometimes it's like the framing, the mindset, and then just understanding human growth and development you know, and giving for not just what happened in a moment, but also being curious enough to understand, because uh, then we understand the child, then we can help the child understand who they are, right? Know thyself is not just something that, you know, once you get to your adulthood, now you're looking, oh, let me start, you see all these adults. Now I'm trying to find myself. Well, maybe you're trying to find yourself as, as an adult, because that journey didn't really start as a youth. Suppose we could start everybody knowing themselves deeply, knowing what triggers are, knowing how to, and not just say, oh, that's a trigger forever, but knowing in that moment and then like, okay, how to help process and, and expand and grow. Um, and I think that's what life is supposed to be about. How do we take on these challenges? But I think sometimes we are in such a rush, you know, children are in a rush to be adulthood, to reach <laughs> adulthood. Adults are in a rush to get them to more independent sometimes, right? And so sometimes there's, uh, again, I'm, I'm painting a really broad brush, but it's enough of a pattern that is quite noticeable. Because what you're describing to me is about helping our children or students to learn how to listen to themselves so they're able to self-manage themselves better. I think it's manage themselves, but it's also understanding others as well, right? Mm -hmm. If you know, if you're, I think it's a, it's a one of the ways to help human beings develop empathy you know, understanding it, but it's hard to do that. If you're, if you don't really understand yourself, how can you understand other people, right? How are you going to be more empathetic to others? If you're, you know, have deep misunderstandings or ignoring some of your, you know, your emotional needs, you know, your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, your intellectual needs. Um, these are all things that I think can aid to how we interact with others. And so when we're talking about building communities in classrooms and schools and neighborhoods and, and recreation centers and so forth, it's about community. Like, how do we work together? How do we spend time together? How do we interact with each other? All of those can inform our values. And, you know, that patience, that kindness, all of that, that reflection time, you know, can help us improve ourselves as well as our just general interactions with others. Can you give me an example of listening to student voices and how that impacted the organization, the school, the community, the, you know, something bigger and how that might've had influence on what was done. Well, so one of the things, even the starting our organization, Center for Black Educator Development and our work has been so informed by the youth. One example is before we even started, I was still a principal and I was talking to uh, one of my students who is actually interested in becoming an educator. She was a junior in high school. You know, she spoke about it and she said, you know what, but I'm actually going, traveling an hour outside of the city to go to a suburban mall to flip burgers for a chain restaurant. And she said, what I really want to do is learn how to teach, you know, and not to help me with my bulletin boards or here, file these papers, help me grade these papers. She was like, I want to learn about the art and science of teaching. And it really, it sat with me a while because I started thinking like, where do students go to learn? how to teach the art and science of teaching, the mindset, the skill, the will necessary uh, to become an educator. She said that usually when she says, oh, I love children, I wanna teach people say, oh, you love kids, why don't you come babysit mine, you know? Um, but it's not hearing her as far as like what she wants to do, but that also allowed me to give her feedback on language that she can use as she's talking about it. But it was, she was one of the many voices that inspired us to be, start this organization. Like, okay, you know what? There's not a place for students to learn about the mindset, skill, and will necessary to be a highly effective educator. They have to just go explore it in college and many in, in America, at least. A lot of teacher colleges, they don't, students don't do their student teaching until their second semester of their senior year. That means they wow. would have gone through, you know, four years, three and a half years before they even get in front of a classroom to learn how to lead it. And so we thought like we should have some type of apprenticeship for that. The other uh, piece about the diversity, diversity of teachers and our youth, uh, we are constantly engaging them, you know, for feedback, their ideas. They wanted to uplift the We Need Black Teachers campaign. 
And mm -hmm. so you could see, you know, if we launched this in September, you know, really giving them a platform and helping to elevate their voices of hashtag we need black teachers. Because what they were saying was many of us, many of their peers, their own uh, lived experiences in, in the educational system, it was rare for them to see a mirror of themselves, of their cultural background, of their experiences, of their communities, leading a classroom or a school. They were often seeing windows and seeing other people. What they said was this was also good for their white peers to see someone, to have more windows instead of all mirrors throughout their, you know, educational experience. And so those are just two examples. I would say even our teacher apprenticeship, it is intergenerational. So it's elementary school students being taught by high school and college students and being coached by us. So that's four groupings or age groups, so to speak, working in community with each other, sharing thoughts, sharing ideas, giving collective feedback. And their feedback to us is absolutely crucial for us to not only establish our organization, but to continue to grow and improve. We can't do that without the youth, high school students um, in particular, sharing this is how we experience your leadership. This is how we experience your coaches. This is what our time uh, felt like. So again, back to like the questions that we come up with, you know, we're asking, how did we show up as leaders? How did you experience our leadership? Not just, oh yeah, we're, we're leaders. How did you experience our leadership is probably some of the most important questioning. And that is very similar to, you know, parenting, you know, how can I be a better father to you? And that may be hard for parents because they're, you know, not only time-wise, but, you know, ego or other things, you know, like, what do you mean? I'm a good parent, you know what I mean? Be satisfied, <laughs> you know, don't be ungrateful. Like, I work hard, you know, but um, it's not just about working hard. It's also about working hard effectively. And for us to be at our optimal levels of effectiveness, we can't do that without feedback. You know, I love this question. How do you experience our leadership or how do you experience me as a teacher? How do you experience as a parent? Like when you ask that from a leadership perspective in terms of the people in the program, can you give me a few examples of how they answer that question about how they experience you or the leaders? Like what are some of the answers that, that show up? Yeah. I mean, and I would say, you know, happy to also share like a report card um, that captured mm -hmm. some of this. The vast majority, fortunately, had very positive and glowing, you know, 90 something percent. You know, I would say 100 percent are more interested in teaching than they were you know, after they went through our program than they were before. But there was some subtlety around it, you know, around identity. You know, even if we're in a mostly Black American space, they also wanted us to make sure that we were recognizing. Some of them individually felt like they weren't seen uh, mm -hmm. about their individual experiences, about their, you know, their own cultural backgrounds, you know, and so we're trying to be far more conscious about that. And that feedback was, you know, it's just extremely helpful, like, you know, not getting lost as that individual person, you know, yeah. having the time and space to, you know, be your authentic self. And that's what we're asking districts and schools to do. And so we also have to make sure that, you know, we're doing that as well. But, you know, 90 something percent. And this is, I think, was someone who said like they were returning, you know, the following year and they felt that this was, this was a way that we could improve. And so, you know, those are, you know, just so grateful, like, you know, so beautiful. That's beautiful yeah. that they felt safe enough to say that as well, because they feel the the community. And you talked about this being a community and people mm -hmm. helping each other out. And yeah, it's true. We all, we still want to be seen as ourselves, you know, no matter what, <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like, when am I seen, heard and listened to, you know? And when I think about that, that's the same thing that, you know, many just educators are, are asking for. You know, we mm -hmm. did a report, you know, where we interviewed 100 Black teachers, partnership with Teach Plus, an, another nonprofit. They interviewed 100 Black teachers, and we collaborated around a report based off the feedback that they gave. And we ended up naming a report to be who we are. Like that would help with retention efforts of Black educators in, you know, in the United States. They're more likely to stay if they have a, a, a culture that's affirming that everyone, leadership is committed to uh, racial justice, that it's not just on them to keep saying, hey, that's a form of racism, or hey, yeah. see me, or hey, this is the support I need, that they wanted other people who were also committed to their well-being and recognizing that some of the structures could be, you know, biased 
that there's a history of racial bias and that everyone is committing. They're not looking for perfection from school leadership or district leadership. They're looking for is acknowledgement and a commitment to improve. And I think that's yeah. what most human beings that whatever they want from their leadership is commitment to improve, transparency, support, and receptivity to feedback. You brought up that important point about trust, right? If I don't trust that you're going to do something with it, or I'm not going to receive some type of censure or backlash for, you know, speaking my truth, then there's more, you know, I'll be silent, you know? And so we push and challenge on both, you know, on both ends, you know, there's a a famous quote from uh, one of our uh, freedom fighters. She said, you know, speak up because if not, they, if you're silent about your pain, they'll say that you enjoyed it. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I was just thinking of a couple of things, you know, today. Let me just say the the exact quote. So Zora Neale Hurston, a a famous writer and Mm -hmm. author and and leader said, if you're silent about your pain, they will kill you and say that you enjoyed it. And so we are also pushing challenge leadership to build ecosystems of trust Mm -hmm. uh, where there's a predictable and safe feedback loop, not like, oh, popping in your room. Hey, give me feedback about this. But there's a culture of ongoing feedback to each other and also pushing people who are experiencing it to, you know, find, and I get individually, you know, it may not be safe in every space, but find other people that you can organize with, that you can build community with so that you can uplift it so that people are aware um, clearly. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a firm believer in having a team of listeners around, you know, Mm -hmm. I have my team and, you know, I've learned over the years that the person I listen to are not necessarily the people to listen to me. If I expect people to listen to me in the same way that I listen to them, I'll be disappointed. And so it's, but to build a team of listeners to help so that I thrive, you know, amidst everything that's really important. It's part of self-care too, right? Like finding, you know, finding a group, finding folks who will listen and challenge you, right? And right. and and knowing who, you know, we have different roles in, in our lives. We meet people for different reasons, different yeah. um, experiences with folks. Like there's some folks, that, you know, in my family, I know they'll just listen and they help me process what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. And they're not they're going to rush and jump, oh, do this, do that. They actually know that I'll probably get there myself, but I needed to think out loud and I needed yeah. a safe, you know, partner to do that with. And that, that can come in different. And that's another thing that we can share with students. Like, you know, do we quickly just give them the answer, you know, with our children? Do we just say, mm-hmm. oh, just do this tomorrow, say this, or do we help them? And, and not that they'll get it right each time, you know, we can give feedback or we can just keep questioning, you know, until they come to a conclusion. Right. And so getting them in the process of doing that, they'll start doing it with themselves. Like maybe I do this. Well, if I say it this way, or this is the best way, like what's the best way to communicate? And one of the most way, one of the most promising ways to get there is to be a really good listener, which includes listening to ourselves. What does what does your gut say? What did you feel about that? What were you feeling in that moment? Where was your tense? Did you feel the tension in your neck and your head and your shoulders and your back? Like where when did you when did you feel your heart racing? And each time they're like, oh, my heart race, my adrenaline is going. Then I respond. Okay, all right. You know, my my six year old couple months ago, I was saying something, you know, I was probably fussing about something. And she said, dad, I'm trying to get into my peace. You're, you're messing up my peace. And I'm just like, peace, what do you know about? You know what I mean? But she was, she was saying like, she was trying to center herself. My eight-year-old once when she was about five or six, she, she came out of the bathroom without washing her hands. She had forgot. Mm-hmm. And I just asked her like, Hey, did you wash your hands? And she said, no, I was like, mm. you know, nothing, you know, I was just, you know, cause she immediately went, you know, went back. And she was crying though. And I'm like, what's the matter? You know, I, and she said, I said, all I was saying was like, you know, reminding you. She's like, yeah, but that sound you made, you, she said, you didn't have to make me feel bad about it. <laughs> and that just crushed me. I'm like, you know, what? My, you know, I, my daughter is very, you know, one is more sensitive than the other, but it helped, it helped me become a better parent. Yeah. You know, my older children weren't that sensitive. So I could be like, come on now. You know, I could say <laughs> something like kind of offhandedly. And, but what she's teaching me is like, you know what, you don't know how other people may have experienced that. Maybe even my siblings experienced it differently, but they didn't say anything, you know, where she said it. And I just felt so grateful 
that this six-year-old was comfortable enough to give me that type of feedback. I mean, it hurt, you know, like, you know, I, I felt so bad. She's like, yeah, but you didn't have to make me feel bad about myself. And I was like, wow, all I did was just like, you know, some kind of flip it, like, mm, come on now, you know, like some kind of, I don't even think I said a word. I think I made a, you know, a noise of disapproval. And, you know, that cut her in a, in a way that just has me thinking about it more, you know, and also when, when you, I, when you describe that, it's basically that noise or that mm, she experienced that as something that made her feel bad about herself. That was her yeah. experience. And it's, yeah. you know, whether you didn't mean that, but that was her experience on the other side. And so, oh yeah. yeah and, and I could have responded like, oh girl, toughen up. Like, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> but what I wanted to do was like sit with it and like, whoa, like that was pretty profound for a six-year-old to be in touch with her feelings, to understand, and to be okay with communicating it, you know, to me. And but that's the beautiful part because the fact that she's able to communicate it, then it doesn't stick and stay. It moves on and she grows. <laughs> and I do yeah. as well, right? Yeah, so, and you do as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I was there's some. I wish I had the resource on, but I but there's research out there that shows that when school, I think they use superintendents or directors or whatnot, when they listen to teachers, the kids get better grades. There's some re research on listening that's out there. I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing, you know, when you were speaking about what you're um, noticing about what people are asking for, and in terms of change and growth of students, there's also some very current research that's just coming out about listening, showing that this good listening or the experiencing this listening is actually more in, in terms of moments. It's episodic. So that means that there are moments of this quality listening that affect change and growth. And our systems can only handle so much great uh, growth and change at one time. That's why it's more about moments. And I was thinking about what you were describing also in that moment of trigger and then how to reflect back this moment or when you um, shared about the story about your mother, that was like a moment that really had impact on you. And yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, you know, and I've seen similar uh, research around it, like these micro moments that we can do really, we can show up well. And we'll get more multiple practice because there's all these micro moments, right? And so we don't have to worry about like, oh, I've, I failed that miserably and, you know, I regret that and, you know, and just going to shame and uh, fear and all these kind of things. Like there will be other micro moments that we can start recognizing like, whoa, this is, this is an actual opportunity. And it's the bigger that we think it's small, but it can be colossal impact and trajectory and, yeah. and healing and all of those kind of things. And we have to, we have to cherish that. We have to cherish mm -hmm. those and, and commit to growth, no matter, no matter where we are, what we're doing, you know, it's a continuum, right? And so we talk about this as we develop educators that even around like cultural proficiency, you mm -hmm. know, there's before proficiency, there's actually cultural competence, you know, that's just acknowledging like, oh yeah, there, you know, people come from different cultural backgrounds is important. doesn't mean we act on it doesn't mean that we are use it to accelerate achievement it just means that we acknowledge so we've gotten to the competency but where we want to be is the proficiency and finding those micro moments to be proficient to reflect to practice and get better at it right and it's a continuum and you know our effectiveness may ebb and flow depending on situation depending on variables and stressors and all those kind of things but what we can commit to is like hey i know where the proficiency uh, level is, and that's where I'm trying to get to and become more consistent. So in those micro moments, I am getting, and we're going to make mistakes too, because that's the nature of being a human being, right? Yeah. And so being able to reflect on that as, as well. So if you were to help me to be more culturally proficient, mm -hmm. what is important for me to practice? Yeah, I think one, again, back to feedback and leadership understanding it because some people are on this path to becoming proficient but they never ask the students or their teachers how they're doing where it gets uncomfortable it, <laughs> yeah it's just like yeah. all right I know I'm doing this I'm in a book club I read this I attended this webinar so I'm in my own personal journey in my head I'm reaching proficiency you know we get an example like you know when a, a teacher comes into their classroom if they have a new hairdo new shoes new bag students recognize it right away, right? Like, oh, you got a new haircut. Oh, you got new glasses. Oh, you got, right? Like they, they're in tune to, you know, to that. How often do we go to professional developments and webinars and book clubs 
about being culturally proficient and students never recognize that anything has changed about us. Yeah. They have the same interactions with us that they had the previous year or the earlier fall or whenever, but yet in our heads, we've journeyed, we've made the journey because it's all centered in ourselves, not how other people are experiencing. But suppose we said like, hey students, I got feedback from you about your experience in our classroom, about what will help you achieve better, what will help us develop a better community and relationships and all those kind of things. I'm going to ask you periodically how I'm doing. And often we put on the board, here's what students are going to achieve by the end of this period or the end of the unit map or the end of the whatever, right? Students will be able to accomplish X, their master X. Suppose we added a sentence about us, what we're working on. Here's what I am working on. Here's what I'm improving. I'm the lead learner and here's what I'm improving on. And I'm being transparent about it with you as students, because guess what? You're the ones that's going to give me feedback. I'm going to, yes, self-reflection is absolutely crucial. I should be doing that as well. I must do that as well. And I'm going to ask you because you're supposedly the beneficiaries of my improved cultural competence and proficiency. So let me make sure that I'm asking you, let me make sure I'm asking the families how you feel or experiencing, you know, asking family, hey, can you ask them, you know, when do they feel best in my classroom? When do they feel most supported in my classroom, most successful? When do they feel the most challenged? When do they feel most disrespected? Mm-hmm. Suppose they're asking family, and again, that helps families ask specific questions beyond how was your day, right? Because there's a partnership with the child, the parent, the child, but also the child's parent. We're saying we're both committed to helping this child improve, which means the environment and my leadership has to constantly get better. How do I go from good to great, average to good, and so on and so forth? Can you think of some feedback that you received that surprised you from students? Oh, I got it. So <laughs> I, I was able to, you know, teach and be a principal for 26 years. And I would say my, you know, one of the things that I love doing as a principal was asking students how they, I would ask them this idea about, you know, how would you rate your school and your experience in this school? Again, their experience, right? How would you, from one to 10, 10 being the highest, one being like, this is the worst place, Elmecki, like, you know, why are you doing this to us? And then what would it take to move up two points, wherever they landed, right? So one, building a relationship and trust to like, hey, you can say whatever, because I'm also going to ask you how I grow, not just how you like your school? Oh, it's all right. It's cool. I like it. I'm not just asking that. I'm asking where, what do we need to do? What do I need to do as a principal to improve your experience here? Right. And so it gives students two things to think about. How am I experiencing this? And what do I want to see from this school leader? Right. And it's very similar to what I would ask, you know, as a, you know, as a teacher. And, you know, I, I don't know if I was, I'm trying to think. I've definitely had some moments where I was like, huh. I hadn't thought or I hadn't heard of that, you know, before, you know, but I, th- I think a lot of it was just the willingness to give the feedback, you know, so not a surprise. I think it's more just I was grateful that we had the type of community and we had the type of relationships where students were, were sharing and, and things range from, you know, the lunchroom is, is terrible, the food is terrible to, you know, we don't, I don't see myself in the extracurricular activities, you know, like the opportunities and options. I don't see myself like I, I can't see that you thought of me when you all develop these catalog of opportunities, you know, and recognizing like, okay, there's a significance. So we need to start asking students before we say, oh, here are the activity. What do you want to do? What would you like to see? I think very similar to, to families, you know, back to school nights and things like that. We always had great attendance and we still ask folks, you know, hey, how could this improve? And one of the things we started doing was having multiple back to school nights at different times of the day in response to families giving feedback. Well, like, hey, that whole five to seven is extremely hard for me, you know, to do that. And it wasn't one or two. There were significant numbers who said, like, even when I make it, it's a huge challenge, you know, to do that because I work in the evenings or I, you know, I have other responsibilities or caretake, whatever it is. So we started doing one during the day and then one in the evening you know, to give people options and choices of when to uh, come in. Another thing that was feedback was around, you know, typically back to school nights, you know, people are excited and thrilled to kind of get back, meet their parents. But what we will often do is just 
give all the policies and procedures of the school and the expectations. Here's what time we open, what time we close, here's the late time, here's the homework policy, here's this, that, that, right? Like that's what the evening is. All right, now you can meet your teachers and they're gonna go through the same thing. Here's my grading policy, here's this, here's that. We shifted that based off of feedback and it started being an interview, a listening session for our staff. How would you like to be communicated with? What's your child's strengths? What are your aspirations for your child? Like, what is the purpose of this education? And, you know, not, oh, Mm-mm. I want them to get a job. Like, no, they, they have higher aspirations than that. They want their children to feel fulfilled. They want their children to be able to pursue, one, explore, pursue what they want, the impact they want to make, you know? And some of the things we started doing, stop, you know, like we just kind of banned, self-banned the idea of like, what do you want to, be when you grow up, you know, because too often it was leading, almost implying you're successful if you go work for someone else, you know, you know, who are you going to, it was almost, you know, who are you going to work for? You know, you're doing all this, who are you going to work for? You know, you know, that company or that company or that company where we started asking like, hey, what problems do you want to solve? You know, how do you want to touch the world? How do you want to show up? Like, what experiences do you want to have? You know, what challenge, what do you want to build? What do you want to burn down? You know, what do you want to like, just like, suppose those are the habitual questions and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, suppose we, we pushed and challenged and then we started matching, you know, then you can start matching the education to what they want, you know, what they want to do. But starting off asking families and the children, what are your goals? What are your aspirations? And how do you want us to show up in that, you know, how do you want us to communicate that? How can we build trust with you? What's the, no matter how we are, how can we improve our relationship? What do you want to see from us consistently? Asking those questions and listening. And, and then again, they're not seeking perfection. They're seeing, seeking growth, commitment to growth, transparency. Then we can say, all right, this is what I heard. And then we're going to revisit this. And you're going to tell us how, how are we doing? How are we showing up? How are you experiencing our partnership? I love that. I'd love to come to your school. <laughs> uh, you know, I That's miss it. You know, I was there question. for 11 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the staff and team that, you know, they were just, they just got it, you know, they, uh, they, they got it. They, they understood yeah. that we're a community school, that we are part of a community, that we're here to lead and serve mm. and support and partner. And that, that's fostered a, a deep relationship, Yeah, you know, and to see families and be able to you know, uh, be with families as they recommended others to refer our, us to other people as we started seeing siblings come to the school, you know, and mind you, there's some, you know, I was, my first principal, I was the third principal in six months. Wow. And so imagine that type a lot of, of change. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. The environment and the culture where everything starts, you know, was mm-hmm. the culture of the, of the school. And what are we saying to, to families? And what are we saying to the parents of, uh, you know, and other people's children. It seems to me, at least from an outside perspective, that you have this drive to really diversify education with educators that, as you said, also help mirror the students that are there to that support system that there's so really supporting also finding more Black teachers in schools, or at least in Philadelphia and probably around the U.S. I mean, you've also spent a lot of time in the educational system and seeing the lives of students trans being transformed in by shifting things, by changing things. And I'm wondering if you look back at the moment where you knew, okay, we got to do something. Something has to happen now. What was that moment? I think I've had several of those moments. You know, I was on my way to law school. I'm a, one, I'm a child of activists, you know, folks who are committed to their community, committed to racial and social justice. And I was on my way to law school when, you know, I decided to become a teacher. You know, someone tapped me on the shoulder and invited me into the profession, right? And so it was not something that was on my radar as a way to, you know, give back to my community at that moment. So that was one, you know, being invited into the profession and really seeing the connection between educational justice and racial justice and social justice, like how it's, you know, Dr. Martin Ryder, Black man in the school district of Philadelphia told me that, you know what, the purest form of activism is teaching, you know, Black children well. Hmm. And they were the ones that were getting, you know, um, just the lower end of 
you know, hope and justice and equity in the educational system. And so that was one. I think also just had the opportunity as a young teacher to be surrounded by leaders, you know, not only the formal leadership team, but the people I was learning from and the way that I saw families embracing the, the school it was a community school. So even families were taking classes at night in the same building and on Saturdays. And so being able to see that really informed my worldview. And it made me reflect on my own experience in, in school, particularly in, in K from kindergarten to eighth grade and what that meant. You know, I think one of the things that I experienced was that, you know, learning is the difference between schooling and learning, schooling and education. You know, some people are really intent on just making sure students have good schooling experience, where most of them really want a great learning experience, which can happen anywhere. And my learning experience was also in the community that held just as high a value of what was going on within the school. And we can even see how many people say that some of the things that they learned, public speaking or writing or being assertive and confident actually happen outside of school walls. You know, it could be at faith-based institutions. It could be with a coach. It could be with a relative. It could be with a neighbor down the street, right? Like there are so many um, experiences. And so for me, that was another really telling piece about like what the ecosystem for our children and youth look like, feels like. And I think that's one of the tenets of our work. You know, we're not just pushing into schools and teaching a course on, you know, what is teaching, you know, kind of teaching 101 look like, but we're also engaging high school youth to be part of the solution where they teach first, second, and third graders, right? Like, you know, what can a, a 10th grade student teach a first grader about literacy, right? There's probably things that we can do this. So let's formalize it a little bit. Let's normalize what they're doing all the time. You know, we, we would visit schools sometimes and say, hey, who's ever thought about being a teacher? And so it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to be a teacher, you know? And, you know, it's fun. You know, I always chuckle because usually a lot of the reasons, like, well, kids are too bad, too bad. They're too challenging. I'm like, you're a kid. You're like, yeah, I'm talking about myself. I wouldn't want to teach me, right? You know, so that's one thing that always makes me uh, giggle a little bit. But then we also just ask them, how many of y'all, do y'all recognize that teaching is leadership? And they're like, huh? What? Like, mm. yeah, you're leading a classroom. How many of y'all have been leaders, been called out and celebrated for being a leader? So many of them raised their hand. We're like, how many times have you actually supported a peer, even by your own doing, or an adult ask you to support a peer, an academic situation, a social situation? So many of them raised their hands. You know, and how many of them love your community, love children, like love, you know, youth, and they raise their hands. We're like, those are the foundations of being a great teacher you know those are some of the foundations and there are other technical aspects of it but you know you forget how often you actually are teaching already yeah and helping them connect the dots with that is a big part of our work as early exposure and clinical experiences for our youth to see themselves as leaders as teachers and help them connect the dots between educational justice and racial justice because so many of them are very interested in societal change, leadership, activism, fairness. We have this saying that we use from a Hall of Fame educator, Mary Church Terrell, and she talks about this concept of lifting as you climb. And mm. what we do is just create the space for youth to lift as they climb. And ultimately, the, is the beautiful part about that is that's what we're doing as a staff as well. We're helping to lift them up as we climb ourselves too. So that's awesome. Well, I, I noticed when I was, you know, reading through, I was, you know, doing a little research on you and I was reading through some of the things that you had written and also some of the videos you had done. And I was thinking you have beautiful language and beautiful, strong, active language. And, you know, you're talking about justice being fair. I was reading words like, you know, you talked about teaching is leadership, right? Mm -hmm. You also, I also read something about teaching is revolutionary or liberating education, like very powerful words that I, I feel like they're, it's like this huge tree where the roots can go down deep and hold strong while the branches are growing out and producing this amazing fruit, you know, that make everything lush and <laughs> full of life. That, that's the image. <laughs> well, that's good. That's definitely, you know. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I and we think that, you know, teaching has always been an extremely powerful lever, that educational spaces are extremely powerful levers. You know, uh, Frederick Douglass used to say that, you know, education makes a child unfit to be enslaved. Mm. Um, and so when we think about that, you know, when this ties to justice, you know, I, you know, my mother was my first teacher. And, you know, one of her, one of the things I love to quote about uh, that she said was, you know, what if you want, so I would say people are always talking about like peace, you know, finding peace, having peaceful solutions. Um, she's like, something precedes that. And it's justice. She said, if you want peace, then fight for justice, because justice will surely give birth to peace. And I've just always like, you know, just love that. And, you know, that helps ground my work and my mindset, because ultimately that's what teaching is. What's your mindset? What's your skill? And what's your will? What are those levels? Are the, you know, that's the foundation of being an, an effective educator. So I'm just going to throw out a question. I don't know if there's an answer to this. How do we listen to justice or how can listening support justice? Yeah. So listening with actual hearing can support justice because the people, the aggrieved can share how they're experiencing things, right? So it's not just, you know, the self-centeredness. It's about, again, back to how are you experiencing my leadership? How are you experiencing this policy? How are you experiencing these protocols? If we respect you know, everyone says, oh, we're doing this in service of the people or the community. But how many times do you see policymakers, for example, implement things that people don't actually want? And that comes from not listening or choosing who to listen to, finding people that are going to reinforce what your own, you know, ideas are, you know, subscribing to confirmation bias as a, you know, as a strategy and a mindset, you know, like that's how, how people lead often. And so if we're really seeking justice, then we are going to make sure that we're listening to, we're hearing, we're seeing, you know, folks who have, folks who would consider themselves aggrieved from our leadership, from our policies, from our procedures, from the culture that's been established. So if we do that and we listen to hear, listen to understand, and listen to learn, that's a different way to lead. And ultimately that is the the mindset that can, you know, help us march towards a path that's far more just than what many of our most marginalized communities experience today. Yeah. If you were to, to our listeners, because even when you're speaking, I see this not only in the education system, but also in the organizations, you know, in, in the oh, world and things like that, you know, just it's, absolutely. yeah. And, and politics, obviously in politics and whatnot, but I mean, you've given lots of great examples of ways that you've also listened at scale, you know, through interviews and through, it uh, sounds like surveys, I, I'm assuming surveys. you've done some focus mm-hmm. groups. Surveys, and, focus groups. Yep. Yeah, All those types yep. of things. So to really listen at scale is something, what would you suggest to our listeners that would support them, maybe an idea or a tool or an example of how they could put into practice um, how to listen to these uncomfortable, maybe, you know, I think people are a lot of times afraid to listen to, you know, stories where people are struggling, you know, sometimes people Mm -hmm. are afraid of that because they're afraid they can't do anything, you know, quote unquote, whether that's true or not is a different thing, but what would you suggest that would help people to be able to listen and not be afraid to listen? Yeah. I mean, I think this is why change takes courage, you know, and most of our learning comes from spaces where we're uncomfortable. If we're comfortable, then it's, it's less likely that we're learning. You know, it's, it's just like learning simple arithmetic. If you already know one plus one, but you stay just practicing one plus one, you know, it's a level of comfort. Like you're not pushing and challenging. We know just how life is, the push, the challenge, the, the, uh, the, that is what leads to development. And it's no different than addressing our biases, you know, addressing our, our worldview. And our outlook, like it has to be challenged in, in a way. And it doesn't have to be a challenge in a way that's aggressive or disrespectful or anything like that. It can be like, you know what, I want to um, start off and it can start off small, you know, asking people for feedback. You can ask your friends for feedback and be like, hey, give me honest feedback when, and not just, oh yeah, you're a great friend. Da, da, da. Just like, hey, when have I let you down? What, you know, is there a pattern, right? When have I disappointed you? When did you feel I was the truest type of friend? 
you know, and you can start this off with your inner, I think everything, you know, most things, a lot of things can actually be practiced with your inner circle, you know, spaces you feel, you know, I tell people like, oh, we need safe spaces. We need safe spaces. I'm like, yes, but they also have to be brave spaces too, not just safe spaces because safe spaces can, you know, end up being oppressive and just say, hey, I want this to be a safe space. So don't give me any feedback. I'm coming in this safe space because I don't have to hear anything that makes me feel uncomfortable. Nothing that pushes me to be more self-reflective and self-critical. And not, again, not to be critical in a way that's damaging to our psyche, but critical enough for us to grow. And I think that's where, you know, we have to find and challenge ourselves, but we can, we can practice that in, in the spaces that feel the, the most safe because everyone's not ready for public learning, you know, where we <laughs> just throw something out and, you know, in the, whether it's the Twitterverse or some kind of public engagement, just like, yeah, I just want to try this out, you know, and people, you know, are like, what, you just said that, you know, like, suppose you start in a space that's more comfortable, but gradually building those muscles and feel like, hey, you know what, now I'm ready to get more feedback, or now I'm ready to, you know, get feedback from other folks, you know, and that was, I think, one of the things that helped me grow as a teacher, like, I would ask people, not just the administrator, the principal and, and school leaders, but my colleagues, hey, can you, I'm going to try this out, you know, or I'm teaching this lesson, would you mind coming in for a couple of minutes and just telling me how, you know, how things are? Can you, you know, used to even have specific things that I might ask them to do. You know, if I remember one class that the boys insisted that I called on the girls more, another class, the girls insisted that I had preferential treatment to the boys. And so I would, you know, I was like, well, that sounds like I'm pretty balanced and both of you know, but I still, <laughs> but it pushed me to, to really think and reflect and, and I think this is also part of great teaching, right? You know, do I, if a student asks, if a boy, you know, if I'm teaching science and, and a girl, you know, answer, did a problem wrong or answer a question, do I stick with her or do I move on quickly, right? You know, if it's a boy who answered wrong, do I say, hey, well, let me ask you this. And do I stick with them and, and push them, right? Like, what were my expectations? where biases lowering my expectations, right? And so these are things that, you know, I want feedback about, right? Because I don't want to get comfortable. Like, no, I know I don't do that. But like, hmm, is it a possibility? Mm -hmm. Can I be curious enough? Can I be skeptical enough about my own practice to be like, hmm, wait a minute, did that, am I giving off some type of energy? Am I, you know, biased? Am I, do I have, not intentionally, do I have higher expectations for one group of students than the other? but not just in my own head, but I'm also asking them, how do they experience it? Right. Know? So it, it could be also, that's interesting. It's like your six-year-old <laughs> or was it your eight-year-old mm -hmm. that said just, you didn't even have to say something, but the impression was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. What do you think is important for other educational leaders or leaders in education? What's important for them to, to know or to think about in order to um, have a more just system? in order to be able to build this trust or listening or create these brave spaces that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think one is around setting goals, being transparent about that, acknowledging where they are. So like, what's a baseline? Where are you now and where can you be? How can you be really assertive and lean in? You know, you brought up the example of a tree. Um, I use a tree as an analogy as well, where people, you know, they recognize that the roots of the tree is what's doing damage to the foundation of their organization, but they prune the branches and pick the flowers and say, look what a great job we did. They ignore the roots, but prune the branches and pat themselves on the back, right? And so I think that's a part of it as well. Like having the, you know, the tough conversations with yourselves, with your organizations, recognizing. I think another hugely important thing is so many people talk about you know, equity and all of these kind of things, pretty flowery words, but in practice, they're not really interested. They talk about diversity. The only thing diverse is their brochure, or their website, nothing in practice. Their leadership is not diverse. Maybe other people at the, you know, lower ends, you know, of the work might be super diverse. But when you look at the actual decision makers, the purse string holders, the leaders, no diversity or tokenism at best. And you say like, okay, you're okay with folks who are far away from the decision and the power being diverse. But when it gets to actual who holds and wields power, that's about a, you know, 
the least diverse part of your organization. And I'll say like that is one area that you can start with, you know, because I see plenty of boards put out statements about diversity and equity, but the board is not diverse. So start there, you know, or the chief suite is not diverse or, you know, whatever the higher person goes as far as a hierarchical positional power is the least diverse, but yet they're saying, this is what we want the world to be, you know, beneficiaries of our work to all be diverse. And so it's, you know, I, I think a big part of it is just reflection and, and truth and really holding yourselves accountable and being comfortable, being held accountable. Right. If you're saying this, you know, chances are whatever you say you're committed to, there are going to be opportunities for you to prove it. Yeah. And a whole lot of people, you know, fall down on the proof piece. They're great at like putting it out there, but it's, it's they have a worse record than um, folks uh, realizing their New Year's resolution. You know, it all sounds great. You know, when you craft that and say, oh, January 1, this is what's going to be different. But by March, is it really? Or are you just going to wait for January 1 of the next year to, you know, pretty much say the same thing? And so I think a big part of that is having, you know, we talk about on an individual basis, having accountability partners. That's even more important at leadership. An accountability partner can't just be your peers. Accountability partner needs to be the people that you claim to be serving. The people hmm. that you claim to have built the organization for. People that, that you claim to say that you are supporting through your leadership. They should be your accountability partners, not your colleague that you're, you know, just get to meet with and, and both say, yep, you're doing a good job. Yeah, you, so are you, you know, and then yeah. uh, moving on. Well, I love the, 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 our stakeholders, the people that we're impacting they're they're being our accountability partners. That's, and that accountability when it comes down to it, is listening to that feedback that you're talking about and how do they experience us? How do they experience the decisions that we've just made? And how do we build a, a, a space that's safe for them and brave for us? Yeah. Right? So the leader has to think about, yes, yeah, safe and brave spaces. Let it create an environment that we're safe for people who may be aggrieved, may not be, but maybe, or maybe they're just insightful because they're the ones that's experiencing it. We're safe for them to give feedback. You know, we all know like what happens to the voice if we keep ignoring it. It's like the same voice that we have within our head or our gut. You know, after a while, it'll just be quiet. If you, it's like, you never listen, you know, so why am I talking? <laughs> and so it can be the same thing from stakeholders. They're like, you know what, I've, I've shared my experience over and over again. Or, you know what, I've seen what happens to people who shared it, their experience. They were marginalized even further. They were ignored. They were pushed out, you know, whatever the case may be. And then brave spaces, because as human beings, sometimes it's hard to hear critical feedback. And so making it brave for us as leaders, whatever position of leadership you have, that's where the bravery comes in. And then you have to be brave to give feedback, particularly if you know there's backlash. So how do we make it where they don't have to be so courageous? It can just be part of the natural flow conversing because we're like, hey, we're always about continuous improvement. Right. Continuous improvement may, you know, means that there's a continuous flow of information. And it's not just information you know, external. It could be internal from like the other people in the organization or community, uh, but not just like data sets and you know, new research and all those kind of things. Yes, that's part of the information flow. Feedback is also a critical part of the information flow that often is probably the most ignored. People would much rather hear some abstract concept or presentation or research, but not the personalized version of research. Like, here's what I experienced and I'm giving you this feedback. Like, that's a personalized version that people are, you know, sometimes, you know, not quite comfortable um, embracing. Yeah, and, or, you know, I think I was thinking back to this lift and climb concept, you know, what you talked about and, you know, feedback doesn't, it doesn't have to be this defensive thing where we think we have to do everything, but to acknowledge that this experience is real, how this person experienced this is real. And my experience, and you know, how do we work with that and take that and see what we do with it to acknowledge it, that it's real to see what, what can we work with? with in terms of not not just jumping at every single thing that everybody says because you know that's not oh yeah that's not productive but what you no. what you're looking for are patterns and things yeah, right you know exactly. like there may be something like grossly unjust on an individual basis like yeah that needs to be addressed but generally what you're looking for like what are the patterns and themes of uh, because yeah you can't respond to you know you know five thousand even a hundred sometimes and you know i had students that were it was 
almost 800 students, right? You know, so I wanted, I want them to feel individually safe and their need, but it has to be part of a pattern theme. It has to be the culture itself has mm -hmm. to impact the vast majority of their needs, right? You know, safety, belongingness, you know, being challenged and supported, you know, all of those things, right? Like the culture of the school has to do, but then you also need, what are the patterns and themes that we're picking up based off of their feedback, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, can't necessarily do, oh, you know, 800 people want individualized lunches or whatever, you know, <laughs> or individualized this or that, like that's, you know, like that's not really, you know, feasible, but if the culture meets most of their individual needs and collective needs, and then I can also start picking up like where patterns and things where we can improve so that the culture, you rise to the level of your system, you know, so you can have any type of, you know, like, oh, here's the expectations, here's the goals. Bottom line is what's your system? What's your culture that's going to help, you know, further that? And that's probably something that that's, it's at that level that we really need some change to happen. The systems, the structures, how does that connect with the people and their experiences? Exactly. You know, not just the systems and structures, but how does it connect with the experiences that people how do they, have? How do they experience your systems and your, right. or all of that. Yep. Right. And yeah. what is working to be able to lift each other up and climb at the same time? <laughs> exactly. And to have people committed to doing that, I mean, it's a lot of work and it's, uh, you know, just constantly, you know, you know, pushing and challenging each other and being pushed and challenged, right? Yeah. But ultimately, if we have a common goal, you know, so then it talked about like, you know, school and, and families, like we have a common goal of supporting each other to the benefit of this child slash student, right? And then that's what we're, you know, I think that's what I love the most about being a principal in community schools was that that trust was there. And so, you know, having the benefit of the doubt, you know, having the trust, being it comfortable, being challenged. And community school is a beautiful thing. And I lived in the neighborhood. Like it wasn't just at a parent meeting. I could get feedback as I'm waiting for the bus or going shopping, <laughs> you know, like from a grandma, from a parent, from a child, right? Like, hey, this is what I experienced under your leadership. And if I wasn't directly involved, it's still under my leadership and taking responsibility for it. And, and so, you know, but being able to do that, you know, so it still starts with this commitment and love for the community you're serving. And I just often think of how many people are in, in position of leadership and service, but not really in love with the stakeholders, you know, not in like absolutely in love and feel indebted to and feel deep level of respect. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that's what, you know, that's one of the things that was taught to me by not only my parents, but the first teachers that I had in, in formal schooling, you know, um, these teachers were absolutely incredible. Like the school was built, um, it was called Nathamu Sasa, and it was built to support, you know, you know, black children in America. Mm -hmm. And so that commitment early on, it wasn't black children weren't an add-on like, oh, you can't come here. <laughs> oh, now eventually law say you can come here. And so now we're opening yeah. the door, but never, we didn't build this for you. We actually built this to exclude you in, in many different ways. So imagine places that, you know, the so-called beneficiaries, it was actually built with them in mind, built. And because so many of the staff were actually parents as well, that means it was built with parents and families, you know, concepts and aspirations in mind. That was my experience in school, my early on, and wow. it's still having, you know, an impact on me and my school and classmates, even to this day. That you were pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah, I was extremely That's lucky. Really so great. what would it mean for that <laughs> to, to have more know, that of kind that of concept? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Replicate. Yeah. You know, I have to say my, my here, you know, in Germany, they have the school systems very, very different than in the U S I'm still trying to figure it out sometimes. <laughs> and, and my son just switched schools. And part of it, he was, um, they have systems that prepare you for university right away. Mm. And then the other ones where you go to 10th grade and then you can switch over. And he was, he's been in the one where you're, where, where you get ready for university. And it was a lot of work. I mean, there's, they have this, they have to get through certain subjects and they were pushing through, but it was a lot of stress and he could do it, but without much of a life and a lot of stress. And then one day he's like, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> like, okay. You know, that's not a good sign. We don't need a burnout kid, at, <laughs> you know, this, you know, and so we just switched. And even though he still has the same plan, 
he has a little more space and time. He has an extra, let's say, year or space because of how we did it to get the same thing done. And what he said today, I was asking him, you know, about it. And he said, you know, he said, the teachers are so much more relaxed. That's the biggest difference. And because the teachers are relaxed, this, the classroom is more chill. And he feels like he can learn easier because it's, he's relaxed, not this pressure of, and push, push, push. So he feels, yeah, he feels much, he feels good. <laughs> he feels good. Yeah. I mean, that's important, right? Like, uh, again, yeah. how is he experiencing, you know, yeah. school and what are his individual needs and how the, are, how consistently we build again to, you know, because it, it, while it's his individual need, he's probably not the only student that feels that way. Right. So then there's a right. pattern of needs and how can systems be, you know, created for that. When you say switch over, it means like, is more career exploratory after 10th grade? Um, switch over well, it's a little bit of a difference. They have, they switched the one that prepares you for university. They wanted it to be more like the US version of getting done in 12 years, but they kept the same material. Normally they do 13 years, which is, oh. so by the time they finished, it's almost like a first year in college mm-hmm. at US, right? So they changed years, but they didn't change the content. And so it was, it's a lot they realized it wasn't working so well. So they've gone back to the 13 years, but his grade is the last grade that does the 12 year program versus the 13 year program. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so it is still this really intense experience. So what we did is we switched them to this one that goes to 10 years where it puts them into this 13 year program kind of, we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of shifted it ourselves. So then when he does go to 11th grade, he'll shift to a school where he's with kids, his age, because emotionally he's mature, you know, it just, uh, the pressure of the, that 12 year program was a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the difference. But I think one time, sometimes when you're talking about systems, I see that there's a decision made from above of what needs to be learned. And then they kind of follow that. And if it's not followed, then people, the teachers get under pressure. And then, you know, that's, that impacts students. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you would like me to ask you or something else that you would like to share with listeners? If you're, you know, the people who are listening, recognize the importance of listening and they want to do it better. Yeah. Well, what I would say is I participated in the um, international education summit for refugees. It was mm-hmm. actually held in, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering the name, but Poitiers, France. There are many countries, including Germany, that was there to really think about how to support immigrants and refugees in their school systems. Um, and so I was you know, blessed to be part of the United States delegation there a few years ago. And I think one of the things that you brought up that our conversation was about was also brought up at that summit was uh, listening to the immigrants and refugees and not trying to ignore what their views were and just create a system that had no input from them whatsoever. Um, not looking at them as part of the solution and solutions and change agents of their own destinies, just because you were providing land and space, you know? And so that was also the theme there. And so it's not just with, you know, refugees or immigrants, it's with, you know, indigenous groups, it's with uh, students who are born in, in those countries for like human beings. And sometimes I think we isolate the human need once we start labeling them, oh, because they're mm-hmm. immigrant and because they or a refugee, then they don't need to be listened to. They don't shouldn't be looked at as change agents. They shouldn't be looked at as owners of their destiny. Um, and so, how do we provide support and listen to? And I think that's the crux of how to become just, right? You know, it's they are being centered in the solution. They are part of the solution, not looked at as we're the solution and they're the problem. Yeah. And so I think this is, you know, it's just something to continuously learn and, and get better at as educators and as leaders and as parents and community members, like all of it, it's all connected. It's all, it's all similar themes, you know, mm-hmm. that's why we can read stories from written thousand years ago, and it still plays out today in today's context, because these are human conditions that we have to, you know, uh, human values that we have to commit to universal values that we have to commit to and listening intently to learn, understand, and lead is a significant part of uh, reaching that place where justice will give birth to peace. Beautiful. I think we'll kind of, that's a great place to, <laughs> to pause. If people, if, if some of our listeners want to get in touch with you, or want to learn more about the work that you're doing, how do they do that? Sure. So I can find a lot of my writing on Philly's Seventh Ward, P H I L L Y S 
the number seven, T-H-W-A-R-D, so Philly's seventh ward, without the apostrophe, uh, dot mm-hmm. org. We'll put the link in the notes. <laughs> okay, great. All right. The other one is we have a podcast every Sunday where we talk about issues around equity and justice and education every Sunday. So the eight black hands. So happy for folks to listen to that and the link for that. And then if you can also just share our website for the Center for Black Educator Development. Those are the three main areas that, you know, I'm, I'm sharing and lifting up and, and also elevating other people's voices uh, that I think is important for people to, to hear. Well, I am so appreciative that you joined me on this podcast and all the work that you're doing to, yeah, to lift people up and you're doing really important work also for the students. So no, thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out and thanks for your work for having a podcast that speaks about something so important that has not always discussed in depth, you know, so I, I think that's extremely important. And, it, you know, I'm actually, you know, I think the fact that it is, you know, that you're in your you know, speaks to that, that it's a more of a universal need, not just, you know, because sometimes we get siloed and isolated and think, oh, it's just here. Like, no, this is, this mm-hmm. is a national, it's an international, it's universal. So, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I've learned because I work with a lot of different cultures and in the end to listen to one another, to feel connected, to feel that belonging, to build that trust. Also when things are uncomfortable, mm-hmm. yet it feels oddly really good. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. I am your host, Raquel Ark from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Evo Timan for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.